The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain and living in Canada. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite, with an exclamation point. Today's episode is end-of-life caring and care, and here's some of the things I've learned from guests in previous episodes of Family Caregivers Unite about the challenges that end-of-life of a loved one creates for family caregivers. One is most people would prefer to die at home, but this isn't always the best option when, for example, the person is living alone or where the family caregiving involves long distances. A particular problem is that what hospice and palliative care are and do isn't well enough understood by enough family caregivers, nor do family caregivers know enough about what to expect when they first learn that with their loved ones or loved one, they will be contending with an illness that can't be cured and for which death is inevitable. In this situation, family caregivers find themselves, communication is crucial, though not always easy. Communication with the loved one, communication with the family, and communication with the circle of care provided by healthcare professionals, social workers, legal advisors, and others. And then there's the general challenge of the need for better support for family caregivers in end-of-life situations. Our guests today are Vicky Kind and Margaret Anderson, and they're going to talk about the work they do and the help they provide to family caregivers and, of course, the people for whom they're involved with on the end-of-life um, continuum. First, Vicky Kind. Vicky Kind is a clinical bioethicist, medical educator, and hospice volunteer. She's a family caregiver with many years of experience caring for four members of her family. Her most recent book, The Caregiver's Path to Compassionate Decision-Making, Making Choices for Those Who Can't, guides families and healthcare professionals through the difficult process of making decisions for those who are losing or have lost the ability to think. Across the United States, she teaches healthcare professionals to have integrity and compassion and how to improve end-of-life care through better communication. A practical approach to dealing with challenging healthcare situations is relied on by patients, families, and healthcare professionals. She holds a bachelor's degree in speech communication from California State University at Northridge and a master's degree in bioethics from the Medical College of Wisconsin. 
She's also specialized training in mediation from Pepperdine University and UCLA. Margaret Anderson is the founder and executive director of Ian Anderson House, a residential cancer hospice in Oakville, that's Ontario. She created Ian Anderson House after her experience of caring for her husband, Ian, who died of colon cancer in 1990. When Ian Anderson House opened in 1997, on the anniversary of Ian's death, it was Ontario's first cancer hospice. To date, Ian Anderson House has served over 1,100 families. Throughout, Margaret has served as Ian Anderson House Volunteer Executive Director and a board member for Ian Anderson House. She's a strong advocate for the residential hospice movement, which provides the necessary care and support, which, she says, each one of us deserves at the end of our lives. She holds a BA, Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and Economics from the University of Toronto. She's the recipient of many awards, including the prestigious Meritorious Service Medal for individuals whose specific achievements have brought honor to Canada. So welcome to the show, Vicki and Margaret. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Now I'm going to start with a question to Vicki, please. Please, Vicki, tell us more about your, your own professional background and how you became involved in end-of-life family caregiving. Well, I became a caregiver when I was 21 years old when my mom had a massive stroke. I was completely overwhelmed and exhausted but the biggest problem was that I was frustrated because the doctor wouldn't respect my mom's wishes. My mom had made it clear that she wouldn't want to live in a terrible condition, but her doctor had a different idea for her. So my mom lived in a condition she would have, wouldn't have wanted for years. Um, this brought me years later into my profession. I became a clinical bioethicist. I'm the person that steps in when there's a conflict in the hospital and people aren't sure what's the right thing to do. And that's how I help people now. Right. Margaret, please tell us more about how you became involved in end-of-life family caregiving. Well, quite frankly, I didn't intend to become involved, certainly not as much as I have. Um, I intended to, to build the hospice and then, then let the experts take over. And because I'm a lay person, I didn't know anything about palliative care or the issues involved in palliative care and the lack of palliative care, actually, in the funding and education. Um, so I had to learn about all of this the hard way. Um, but it was very interesting. It took seven years and uh, a lot of um, talking and, and meeting with people. The politicians, uh, a bit reluctant, because there was very little known about hospice in this country. Uh, mostly it, it's considered to be a, a concept of care uh, with volunteer organizations and volunteers going out to homes. But Residential hospices, I think there was only one at that time, Casey House, which was an AIDS hospice. So uh, it was very difficult, um, you know, to, to make people understand exactly what it was I was trying to do. And frankly, I was not that sure at that, time, at that point either. Right. However, it's easier today because the Ontario government finally realized that they needed hospice beds. And uh, so there was some funding granted about four years ago. Right. We're going to come back to that story about Ian Anderson House in various ways. Vicki, what led you to write your most recent book, The Caregiver's Path to Compassion, Compassionate Decision-Making? Well, I see a lot of suffering, I see a lot of disrespect, and I see a lot of bad deaths. 
But what really motivated me was I was lecturing at a hospital, and one of the doctors stopped me afterwards and thanked me for giving him the tools that I teach in the book. His sister, who has a developmental delay, a, a mental retardation issue, um, she I was 30 years old, but she has the mental age of an 11-year-old. And he had been giving her too big of a voice in her decisions, and he realized that she had been making bad choices. They were all frustrated, and he realized that he could keep her included but not let her have so much power to make poor choices. And I remember the look of relief on his face when he realized, I can get this right. I realized I needed to help a lot of other people. If, if a doctor couldn't get it right, maybe there were more people. Yeah, good comment. Margaret, please go on telling us the story um, of your creating the Ian Anderson House and the kind of lessons that you learned on the way through. Well, actually, um, because I spent 10 years in Scotland, one uh, from uh, 8 to 18, uh, I understood uh, what hospices were about, sort of by osmosis, but uh, I hadn't realized that in this country, in North America, there's very little, there was very little understanding, uh, certainly 20 years ago. Uh, and it's a very, it's an ancient concept. Uh, actually, hospice and palliative care is a philosophy, and uh, was re- reborn in 1967 in England um, when St. Christopher's House in England was built. Um, the Oxford, Oxford Dictionary says the, it's about palliative care is about enhancing the quality of life for patients and, and necessary support for families uh, to attend to the needs of the dying. And it's more than pain and symptom management. It, there's an emotional and, and uh, well, spiritual, which we don't really tend to in the hospice per se. Uh, but uh, there, are very, there, there are emotional needs that have to be met. And uh, in the hospice, we are able to do that with families and give them a, the kind of break that they need, uh, even for, for the last days or weeks. Right. Vicki, that point about um, palliative care hospice not being well un- enough understood, does that and did that apply um, in the U.S.? And does your experience sort of match that that Margaret's just been describing? Yes. Unfortunately, in the past, we have not been utilizing hospice enough. It's starting to change. Uh, doctors are more aware of it. Hospice is being marketed more. And so luckily, more people are getting that kind of care. I am such a big supporter of hospice. That's part of my mission is to make sure that people can get those kinds of services because it's wonderful. It's something that in the U.S., it's a free service that all people are entitled to that kind of care. Margaret, that comes back. Just quickly, because we are going into a break shortly, but Margaret, please tell us, is that is hospice care free in Canada? Um, how's, how is the financial situation? Well, hopefully it is. I mean, because the philosophy of hospice is all about giving care and uh, without charge. So I would hate to think that any hospice that opened would charge uh, for the service. Um, I didn't know, I'm sure in the United States, I think there's insurance covering hospice care. There is not here in Canada. Um, and it was very reluctant even to have nursing services that were privately uh, insured in, in the hospice because it wasn't that person's home. Uh, so that was the only one of the challenges that we were facing, that this was an alternative to the person's home, and we try to make it as home-like as possible, of course. But no, we don't charge, and, and um, 
it's a challenge, uh, you know, raising the kind of money we have to raise. Uh, for us, it's about 600000 a year currently. Right. Now, it is time for us to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Margaret Anderson and Vicki Kind. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We definitely will be back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What would you do if you were stuck in the middle of nowhere? What would you do if you faced an emergency or disaster? Find out by listening to The Drive to Survive with host Tim McWelch. The program is all about wilderness survival, emergency preparedness, and self-sufficiency. Tim has been a professional survival instructor for nearly 15 years, and his tips and practices could save your life. Tune in to The Drive to Survive every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Go inside the inner workings of the entertainment industry to find out what's next in television, film, and on the web. Listen for Next Stop Hollywood, hosted by entertainment insiders and pop culture junkies Brad Roth and Mark Feldstein. You'll find out how your favorite TV shows and movies are created and marketed from the conventional to the creative. This fast-moving industry has much more behind the scenes than what you see. No matter how big the screen, Next Stop Hollywood airs live Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Left Coast, 7 p.m. Right Coast on Voice America Variety. What's holding you back from doing what you want to do? Is it fear? Is it other people? Is it responsibility? Live life to its fullest. Get Inspired with Dick and Florence Noget will give you the tools you need to experience self-fulfillment and overcome setbacks in your life. If you wish to improve the world you live in, you can move forward and make a difference. Turn your dreams into action. Get inspired. You'll want to listen live every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Help, you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Margaret Anderson and Vicki Kind. Our topic is end-of-life caring and care. Um, let's now talk about rights, supports, and expectations in end-of-life caring and care. Vicki, first, what do you see as the rights of people at the end of life, and why are, are they or why should they be rights? Well, I think that some of the rights include items such as the right to good pain management, the right to be able to make your own choices, um, the right to get all the information you need. In America, we don't always have the right to receive everything because everything costs a lot, but um, we definitely have the right to be involved in our own decision-making. Right. Margaret, how does Ian Anderson House support family caregivers in the end-of-life situations of their loved ones, and how does the 
that support relate to the kind of rights that Vicky's just been talking about? Uh, well, actually, we try to create um, a, a perfect envir- environment for people who are dying. Uh, the house is very comfortable and comforting. Uh, it's quite simple, really. We have a beautiful garden. Uh, we have bird feeders at every window. Um, just to remind people that, you know, life, life is about living every day. Uh, the quality of life, the dignity, I think, comes from the kind of care that we provide. Uh, 24-hour compassionate care with uh, quality and, and the quantity of staff that's necessary and expected in a hospice. Uh, I think uh, by giving people the kind of care that they should deserve at the end of their lives, they feel that they have value still. And treating people with dignity is, is so important at the end of life because these people have been through so much. You know, the, the, the diagnosis, the uh, surgery, probably chemotherapy, the, the, uh, and, and it's, during that, that time, you, you don't feel as if you have much value. Uh, whereas in the hospice, we try to make people feel that we do value them, and, and that's very, very important. Right. Vicki, um, are there limits to the rights of people at the end of life? And if so, what are they? And then how do physicians, among other healthcare professionals, view these rights? Vicki? Well, there is one big limitation, and the healthcare professional has the right to say no to inappropriate treatments. People are entitled to getting good medicine, but as a family or as a patient, you cannot request what's called non-beneficial or inappropriate medical care. And we have a lot of that where families have become very demanding and expecting things that aren't really good for that patient. Um, so, And this isn't easy for a demanding or a grieving family to understand. They don't understand the science behind the medicine, that the doctor isn't trying to keep a treatment from the patient but really trying to protect that patient and not increase their suffering or their harm for no good reason. Right. Um, Margaret, there's an advocacy for family caregivers providing end-of-life care. How do you see that advocacy, and how does Ian Anderson House support that advocacy? Uh, well, we... Of course, uh, the the family physicians follows our people, uh, the patients, into our house and, and uh, works with the staff, uh, the RNs here, uh, with the medications and uh, the, the pain management. And because there's someone there every day, 24 hours a day, uh, there's more communication there. Unfortunately, in this country, um, doctors, I don't know what it's like in the United States, but doctors are not really making too many house calls. They're not rewarded for that, and I can understand that it takes time or it should. The other problem in this country is that there is no specialty in palliative care, and that is a field that's been totally neglected. Uh, that there is very, very little time spent in a medical education or for social workers either for end-of-life palliative care. And actually, palliative care shouldn't just be about end-of-life. It should be about anyone who's suffering from uh, Alzheimer's or any long-term long-term illness, and, and that is even more taxing on family caregivers than the short-term. Uh, so we have a problem here with that. It's difficult to get doctors to follow. We have to have two um, doctors in Oakville who, who do follow, uh, who will take over the patient's care. Uh, it's very difficult here um, to get doctors to do that. And as I say, the funding has never been there. 
um, and uh, neither is the education. So without both of those, it's going to be very difficult to, to bring palliative care to every individual at the end of life. Vicky, I want to just go back to your answer just before Margaret, where you were talking about expectations in effect of care and what it might provide. And what I'm driving at here is that things are sometimes offered um, in healthcare that purport to be care cures but aren't really, and they create, on the one hand, unrealistic expectations, but also intensely disappointing expectations and may also involve the expenditure of money. Vicky, what's your sense of the importance of that issue? Does, is, it, is it something you encounter, or is this just a theoretical objection that I'm raising? No, I think the expectations of everyone involved is definitely a relevant factor. Um, I find that the families are have huge expectations of the the magic that they can see medicine do on TV, but that's not how it happens in the real world. The doctor also tends to create a sense of false hope, um, and which I understand because at first it's hard to be sure at the beginning of an illness how it's going to play out, but when it becomes more obvious that that patient is not going to be cured, that this patient may be appropriate to have hospice, a lot of times our doctors either cannot see it or are unwilling to see it or haven't been trained. I mean, we have palliative care issues here as well. And so the expectation is that, you know, a cure is possible when really the truth is, no, there, it isn't. Right, right. Now, I, I still want to pursue this, this matter in, in an, another kind of way. Um, Margaret, this points to information needs, this question of expectations. And the information needs for family caregivers involved with end-of-life caregiving. First, how does Ian Anderson help them find their, the information they need, and can you say something about the kind of information that family caregivers need in the end-of-life end situation? Yeah, well, I, I think in this country, I don't know if it's because Canadians are more complacent. Uh, I'm not sure that their expectations are that high uh, because people are discharged from hospitals so quickly. Uh, because of the lack of palliative beds and uh, even alternative care beds. And also there's a lack of long-term care facility beds as well. Um, I don't think, I know in my case, I went home, I didn't expect anything. I didn't know what to expect. I was totally new to this and didn't, didn't know, you know what the future was going to hold. But uh, then I had someone come to, to my door saying, yes, we're in RN, we come from uh, community care access. Uh, well, actually, it was home care there. And there are services available uh, to you in the home, uh, but they're, they're not nearly enough. And uh, what we've done, because uh, part of the philosophy of, a very important part of the philosophy of, of hospice is to provide support for the families. So we uh, built uh, several years ago a resource center on the grounds of Ian Anderson House. Actually, it's the first of its kind, too. And uh, caregiver's toolkit was, is provided now. It was... Uh, um, for, for, particularly for people who are new that are just starting a role of caregiving in the home. Uh, it, it's a complete uh, tool that tells people where to go and how to keep track of uh, what's going on. And, and what we do is advocate. We do not give direct advice. 
we use all of the um, organizations in the community uh, that can help families. Uh, we can certainly act as an advocate, and it's, it's like one-stop shopping. Uh, we can tell them what to do. It's not just about uh, caring for somebody in the home at the end of life. It's also about a lot of administrative things, you know, what to do, paperwork, and what's involved after the death. Uh, so there are a lot of questions that are asked that, that we keep track of so that we can answer the question uh, the next time it's asked. Right. But it's very important to have sources of information because I didn't, I didn't know where to go. And you're so, you're so busy, uh, particularly in the last weeks of life. Uh, you're so emotionally exhausted and physically exhausted. You're isolated and you really don't know where to turn. So we're hoping that the idea of a resource center will, will, will start in other areas of Ontario and the country for that matter so that people can get help immediately. And, right. and it would save a lot of 911 calls and, and uh, people going to hospital in, in the case of a perceived emergency. Vicki, Fred, we've only got a couple of minutes before the break, but what about resource centers and the information needs that you encounter in the U.S.? Is it a similar pattern or is it different from what you You know, I, I, I'm finding it interesting that, they, that Margaret said that people have low expectations. I think we suffer from the opposite problem with people having too high of expectations. Um, we also suffer from people going to all different websites thinking that they become experts when not every website gives accurate information. And so the information doesn't always uh, serve that patient and that family. Um, Resource-wise, uh, we're drowning. We, have, we don't have enough resources to take care of everyone. Um, we're trying to solve this, but um, you know, I, we'll see how it plays out here in the, in the U.S. Right. Okay, now I, we are at the point where we'll take the break, um, and I'm going to return to some of these issues in a different kind of way when we come back from the, gra- the, the break. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Margaret Anderson and Vicki Kind. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Zoom Leadership. It's the big picture issues of the day, up-close and personal capabilities of leadership, and a desirable future of constant renewal. Zoom Leadership. It's the economic crisis made clear, patterns and perspectives of leadership, and the importance of changing the way we pursue our future. Join host John Schmidt every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Zoom Leadership. An inside look at what's really going on in business, government, and civil society. Tune in every week on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. 
If you are interested in the special investigation and security industry, be sure to tune in to Urban Warrior Radio. Each week, your host, J.P. Sheets, will discuss topics such as fugitive recovery, skip tracing, high risk and personal security, and associated training. We encourage you to call into our program and email to find out more. Listen for Urban Warrior Radio, airing live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This show will keep you prepared and informed. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Margaret Anderson and Vicki Kind. Our topic is end-of-life caring and care. So now let's talk about the key challenges, the key responses, and the key principles involved in end-of-life care and caring. Um, start, let's start with Vicki. Vicki, what is compassionate decision-making, and what are its principles? Well, the first principle is that we're supposed to respect and honor the person that we're making decisions for, that we're supposed to make decisions based on the values and beliefs of the patient. Um, the second is that we should think about the decision from the perspective of the person you're taking care of. It's one thing for me to choose for someone to go through chemo. It's another thing to actually experience chemo. And so when we become more compassionate, when we think about the fact that our decisions will be experienced by someone else's body, ultimately we're talking about building a good quality of life for that person, whether it's medical decisions or life decisions. We want to think about what would bring comfort, joy, dignity, all the things that we value. Right. Margaret, technical definitions now. What do hospice and palliative care mean? What are their principles? And to what extent do they reflect the principles that Vicky's just been talking about? Uh, well, definitely, yes. We, we do try to um, honor the, uh, the uh, what, what, the, what the residents, we call them residents, by the way, not patients, uh, what they need. Um, again, there's a limit to that. Um, I think uh, if, if someone is you know, doing harm to themselves or whatever, I think uh, you know, the physician can, can talk to that person. We don't assume to do that. Uh, but we certainly try. I mean, we don't have set menus, for example. We, you know, we, we give people really what they, what they feel like eating if, if they do. And, um, however, we do try to have something that, uh, you know, the stock of food that we keep, uh, we hope that it, that it won't do any harm, of course. But uh, we try to, yes, um, you know, give people exactly what it is they want, as I say, ex- except uh, in the case of the medication, and that is up to the physician. Uh, to decide, and, and these people have already decided, some of them, not to have any more treatment. Uh, some, there is no point in having treatment, but some have decided not to have treatment, and any, anyone we take into the house has, has to agree that they do not want active treatment, because if they do, uh, they, can't, they can't stay in the hospice. Uh, we, we look after people 
at the end of life and uh, not uh, as far as you know, chemotherapy or anything like that. If people need that or want that, uh, they, they have to go outside to do that. They have to be discharged. They can come back eventually. But, um, again, they have to have a DNR. There are certain things that have to be uh, done institutionally here. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you for a definition. Mm -hmm. What's DNR, Margaret, please? I'm sorry, do not resuscitate. Sorry, I I interrupted you. Hmm. Um, I was... Let me just put back to you. Hospice, then, is a place. That's Mm -hmm. right, is it, Margaret? Yes, it's a noun, yes. Okay. Palliative care can be something that the physicians do by way of sort of specialized medical care, or it can be the kind of services that you provide. Is it both, or is it one or the other, as far as you're concerned, within the hospice, Ian Anderson House? Well, it's, it's, it's both, really. Um, unfortunately, sometimes palliative care and hospice are used interchangeably. Um, and I don't... I, these two things should be separate. Certainly, when you come into a hospice, yes, you do receive palliative care. But there is some confusion too because there are over 60 volunteer associations of of hospice uh in in Ontario alone uh they don't ha- they don't have a residence they send volunteers out to homes and and for a few years ago they were confusing that saying that volunteers provide palliative care no they don't nor should they uh that is for medical trained professionals only so volunteers go out to, to support a family, which is very important. But it shouldn't be confused that hospices, who an organization that call themselves a hospice, is not necessarily a residence. It could be just a volunteer going, volunteers going out to homes to support families. Okay, that's very helpful, Prince, a very helpful explanation. Now, Vicky, we've talked about challenges for family caregivers before on, on this particular episode, but I want to you to say to us what you think in your experience, your professional experience, are the really key challenges for family caregivers involved of end of, end of life, involved in end of life caring. The first one is lack of information. Um, when they're making medical choices regarding end of life care, there's a lot of medical illiteracy. People don't understand what it is that the doctor is offering or talking about. There's a lot of guilt and grief and crisis and fear and all these emotional obstacles that get in the way of people getting the good end of life that they deserve. Um, I also think there's a lot of lack of knowledge regarding what does the dying process look like. Not only do families and patients or residents not understand what death looks like, but even the healthcare professional sometimes doesn't know what the normal dying looks like out in a hospice or a care facility. I mean, if we, you know, most of us didn't grow up on a farm anymore. You know, in the past, we knew the death and life cycle. But nowadays, you know, death is an isolated thing that happens somewhere else. Uh, The other obstacle is that a lot of people don't have these important conversations with their loved ones about what would they want, what is important to them, or the healthcare team isn't comfortable talking about it as well. And so we don't know how to honor and respect a person. Right. Margaret, um, the various services of Ian Anderson House, I want to ask you about the help that they offer to key challenges, particular ones to Canada or those that Vicky's been talking about, for family caregivers involved in the end-of-life caring. Various services. 
Well, there's not nearly enough attention paid to family caregivers. And I think that has to come, particularly in Canada, because of the aging population, uh, people are living longer, um, and already there's, there has been a series in, the, in our local newspaper in, the, um, in, in Toronto uh, about dementia and, and how it's increasing and what's going to happen and what's going to happen to our health care system. Uh, it's, it's crucial that our home care system, which is called Community Care Access Center, uh, that they inform the, the caregiver exactly what to expect. They should have an initial interview with the caregiver, go out and explain all of these things. No one explained anything to me. And, and uh, you know, you, you really don't know what's going to happen uh, and if you're going to be able to cope. Uh, that's a frightening thing because you're very isolated uh, in your own home. But if, if they spent more time, as Vicki said, the family caregiver needs information. And the time has to be spent, if not by the doctor, then by the, the nurse in the home care system, has to spend time, has to be reached when, when there's a perceived emergency. This is not happening. People, people go, they call 911, and they say, well, don't call 911 because it's an expected death. That's, that's all very well. But it doesn't happen in a, in a situation where a family is, is really frantic about what's happening in, in the home. Mm. Yeah, Vicky, there's a word um, you've used um, in your writing, autonomy. What does it mean in end-of-life caring, and what are the principles that underline autonomy as you mean it? Now, and we don't use this word autonomy very often in our everyday lives, but we use it in bioethics, and it means that a person gets to make their own decisions about their life and their health and their body. It's, it's kind of the idea of free will. It's choosing what makes sense for you in the context of your own life. It also comes with an obligation that sometimes we have to respect the decisions of others that we don't agree with because we would want them to respect us. So, for instance, if I wanted to exercise my autonomy, I would say that I would want to be on hospice. I would want my family and friends nearby. I wouldn't want to be hooked up to machines. Um, so what I try to do is to help people speak about their wishes and talking about what would be a meaningful experience for them because we can't guess what is important to another person. We have to ask, and that's what autonomy asks of us is to learn about that person. Vicki, just an add-in question to that. Does that mean then there's a particular responsibility to provide the person whose autonomy we want to respect with the sort of information that's needed for them to make their own decisions? Am I right about that? Absolutely. You cannot make a good choice without good information. That's what we talk about in the concept of informed consent. People have to receive enough information to make a good choice for themselves. That is, that is something that we have to do. Okay. Margaret, let's explore quality of life and dignity. Um, if, if I can just answer yeah. a little bit of that. Um, one of the major problems with, with palliative care is that doctors very often, well, for instance, they're not, they're not really trained in either pain management or, or even how to, to, to talk to patients about things. And very often they don't tell you the truth. Um, my husband, uh, when he, had, he was stage four, 
and the, the doctor who did the surgery came out, uh, and I was waiting in the hall and said, um, oh, it doesn't look very good, and, uh, but, but no, so I asked, you know, the prognosis. He said, well, he has a strong heart, so five years. Uh, he went to my husband the next morning I, after telling him not to do that and told him he had 10 years. So my husband was 56 years old. He, he could have had just months without the chemotherapy uh, working for over two years. So people should be told the truth or you don't, you don't have to be too blunt about it. Uh, you know, doctors shouldn't be saying, oh, go home and set, you know, settle your affairs. I don't think that's a good approach either. But I think they should be, doctors should be more open. Maybe, maybe they're not trained to do that. Maybe they're not sure. But unless, without knowing all the facts, you can't make autonomous decisions. Right. And that goes back to what um, the importance that Vicky gave to information and how that relates to this, um, definition and this practice of autonomy. Mm-hmm. Now, Margaret, I want to stay with you. Um, I want you to talk to us um, in the same way that Vicky has about what quality of life and dignity really mean and how they're actually maintained through end-of-life care, such as the care you provide at Ian Anderson House. Well, again, it's about the quality of living when you're here. Uh, we provide the environment. We have an excellent staff um, who understand uh, what they have to do, what they have to do here. And if they don't, they're not here very long. Uh, but it's important to make people just feel that they have value and they they have worth because we're taking such good care of them and making sure that they have everything they need uh, under the circumstances. Um, the families, it's also very important. The families are exhausted when they get here. And our, our uh, home coordinators go out and do many, many assessments because uh, now that we've been around for 13 years, people call us rather than the home care people to ask advice and, and to come out and see and, and give advice. Um, so it, it, it's, it's important that they also know and support the family. The family come in here. They can spend quality time, and I don't really like these cliches, but it's true. They can spend quality time with their loved one here. They can go home and have a good night's sleep uh, without worrying. And knowing that the care is so good here, and we've, we have a very, very good reputation in the community, which is why we're still up and running, and uh, people come to us all the time and say, what a wonderful place, I've heard about it, you know, I've visited someone there. Uh, the longer we're around, the better, you know, the more support we get. But it, it's important. I, I think you should treat people the way you want to be treated yeah. at the end of your life. Good principle. Now, it is time for us to take a short break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Margaret Anderson and Vicki Kind. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you sick and tired of get-rich-quick schemes and quick solution promises? There are countless droves of so-called experts who will offer to help you invest in anything from real estate to personal fitness, but at a premium price. Host Dave Lindahl offers a different approach approach a personal one dave can show you how anyone in any situation can start making money wherever they are through his coaching and education 
All you have to do to get started is tune in. Dave Lindahl's Creative Success Alliance, Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration, which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern, with Ariel and Shia Kane, right here on the 7th Wave Network. What would you do if you were stuck in the middle of nowhere? What would you do if you faced an emergency or disaster? Find out by listening to The Drive to Survive with host Tim McWelch. The program is all about wilderness survival, emergency preparedness, and self-sufficiency. Tim has been a professional survival instructor for nearly 15 years, and his tips and practices could save your life. Tune in to The Drive to Survive every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Margaret Anderson and Vicki Kind. Our topic is end-of-life caring and care. And the point that I want to make here is that um, family caregiving is more and more important, not just for families, but also for the healthcare systems and societies as a whole in North America, Europe, and beyond. So let's talk about how the healthcare system can better support family caregivers in end-of-life situations. So, Vicky, first, what is? Tell us more. What is the role of the bioethics ethics committee in the end-of-life decision making? in the hospital situation. You've mentioned this before, but please tell us more about the importance of that role. Absolutely. The bioethics committee role is to help facilitate the conversations. Because we don't have these conversations up front, a lot of times conflict grows in the hospital, and the doctor is uncertain about uh, following the advance directive, the guides the guidelines that the patient or the family is asking them, or the family's conflicted, or the patient doesn't have a family, and so who's going to be making the decisions? There's a, there are a lot of moments where we're not sure what's the right thing to do. Um, in the United States, every hospital has a bioethics committee, and anyone can access this free resource. You pick up the hospital phone and ask for the operator to connect you to the bioethics committee, and someone will come in and help talk to you, talk to the doctors, find out where the conflicts are. They work to help resolve things, usually through a family and healthcare team conference. Um, they also remind people about some of their legal obligations because with the practice of medicine, there are uh, legal issues involved regarding what's allowed and not allowed. Right. Margaret, please tell us how you, Ian Anderson House, work with physicians in end-of-life care and the kind of optimum way of working with physicians. In other words, what's the best model um, in the work you do for the work of the physician in end-of-life care? 
Margaret? Uh, actually, we work with the uh, with the physician. And actually, uh, Vicky, if I might just add something there, I don't know. Uh, it, see, in Canada, in the universal healthcare system, uh, you don't pay for hospital care. Uh, so I'm not so sure that we have bioethics uh, committees or people that are so readily. Uh, available to to speak to people about ethical issues, I'm not sure. I, and that's something for me to find out. Um, but again, because this is a universal healthcare system, and because it's becoming extremely expensive, as I say, it's very difficult to get doctors to even follow here. Um, most of the time, they operate on the telephone, and and too, because in the, the case of, of a cancer patient. Uh, the oncologist has been in charge of the patient for a long time. And sometimes the family, family doc is out of the picture altogether. And as I say, if they're not that well trained, um, fortunately our, our RNs here, uh, have expertise in palliative. So, so it, the doctors very often just speak to them. They don't, they don't come to the house unless there's some kind of an emergency involved. Right. Vicki, um, the talk of family caregivers partnering with the physician for their loved one um, so that the dying experience at home is improved or made to be its best. Please talk to us about this notion of family caregivers partnering with the particular doctor who may be a family physician looking after their loved one. In general, I recommend that you partner in a positive way. A lot of times people try to demand or be aggressive with their doctor, and I just don't think that works. With humans, they tend to respond to more positive feedback. So I think if you can say to that doctor, I really need your help, you and I need to team up and be there for this patient or this person, uh, I would ask that the family make sure that any suffering is addressed. We know how to manage pain, any other symptoms that come with the dying process. People should not suffer and so you do have to be a good advocate and make sure that's being taken care of. I would encourage families to ask for a referral to hospice care, whether it's in the home or in a hospice house. Um, if your doctor won't sign those papers, you may need to ask a different doctor for that referral because not every doctor is well-educated in hospice or comfortable referring to it. Um, if you're in a bad relationship with a doctor, get a different one. I, I don't know if that's allowed in Canada, but we definitely can choose our doctors in the United States. Um, and a lot of times it's really about being attentive to the patient. What is it that they need in this end-of-life journey? And then trying to ask to get the things that are available. And if you can't get them from the medical system, see what you can do to provide it from the outside. How can you make that person's experience better, you know, whether it's sitting with them and talking or massaging their hands with some lotion? You know, sometimes that's what brings meaning to this process. Margaret, mm -hmm. let's talk about the role of volunteers in end-of-life care. You have mentioned them. What is that role, and how should it be developed? Uh, well, in hospice, and by the way, we, we don't use hospice as, uh, uh, you know, the, the kind of care the, for palliative care. Palliative care is palliative care. Hospice uh, is somewhere where you, where you receive palliative care, but uh, it's not interconnected uh, the way... Uh, anyway, the volunteers uh, do a lot of uh, household uh, chores. They come and help the staff, you know, to do the day-to-day -day household tasks. They also help with some fundraising events. 
they prepare meals and, and do laundry and that kind of thing. They'll go if, if, if the resident wishes to have someone go in to sit and talk to or whatever, they do that, but they don't routinely go around uh, the rooms. In fact, uh, neither do I. I believe uh, that everybody in the, in the uh, hospice, where the rooms are in the back, uh, everybody should have their privacy. And if they, if they, whatever they want, if they want the hospital, uh, volunteer to come in and speak to them, that's fine. And the same with the family. The kitchen is the hub where families can go and have a cup of tea or coffee, and uh, and the volunteers will sit there and listen and chat with them. Uh, but no, we don't give advice. Um, we're not. We don't have the expertise to do that, uh, and we don't. Um, we don't tell people how to think about dying either. How to feel about it. Um, that's not our role. It's just to help the, help them through the difficult process and to help the families too. That's very very important. That the families feel they don't have to. They shouldn't be feeling any guilt because their loved one is in the hospice. Uh, that, that they they've done their best. Uh, and, and that could no longer do it. So um, it's, uh, it should be a relief, and for the, for the resident, too, to know that his family aren't going through this terrible you know, emotional and physical toll. Vicki, you're a volunteer in, a, in the hospice world. Please talk about your experiences as a hospice volunteer in relation to what Margaret's just been saying. You know, I think as a volunteer, it's the most profound work I do. I know for me to sit still and to be with a person as they're dying and just be present. Um, I find that everything about that person that, you know, that we all count, you know, what car you drive, what work you do, all the roles we fill in life, all of a sudden all of that is gone and you're sitting with a pure being. And it's just the most beautiful thing to be with that person. And, you know, and again, we don't define as volunteers how they should die or what is important to them. We're just present, and we listen, and we comfort, and it's it's amazing. I know so many people have fears about dying, but dying is it can be incredibly profound, especially if you have good palliative care support. Right. What you've just been describing um, comes to this question of dignity, uh, autonomy, all the things you've been talking about, plus this additional factor. Margaret, let me ask you this. When um, you are providing your care to people who are dying, what do you see as the really, really important things that the family should do, the family caregiver should do, while the person who's dying is in Ian Anderson House? Well, hopefully they'll be here. Um, and, and spend as much time here as they can. We don't, want, we don't expect them to be here 24 hours a day. In fact, we don't even want them to do that. They should go home and have some rest. But uh, I think that's up to the family, uh, exactly what they want. Families are not all perfect, and, and just because someone in the family is dying doesn't mean to say, you know, we, we have, we have um, situations in this house uh, with families who can be difficult, um, and the staff, that's something the staff has to handle, too, uh, as tactfully as possible. But, I, again, I think uh, when a person's dying, they should have someone there that they want to be there. Um, it's, 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 uh, I think it was Woody Allen that said, um, uh, quoted once, that said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... I don't know. I, I think we don't know that till the, till the time comes. And 
uh, and deaths are, you know, I always ask, how was the death? And then it was very peaceful, the family was here, and I think that's really the ideal situation. This is, a, this is just a comment back to both of you. Um, I often ask family caregivers and others, what really makes the sun shine for them uh, when they're doing the things they do in the name of family caregiving or family or caregiving generally? And it seems to me that both of you have said, in the case of volunteering and in the case of the family and the person who's dying, having that relationship that does cause uh, them to feel that they, things are going well, that it was peaceful. So would it be fair to say that you, and I do need a quick answer on this, you both do feel that there are times in the work you do that the sun shines. Vicki, is that right? Absolutely. There's tremendous meaning in being a caregiver. I call caregivers everyday heroes. Margaret? Uh, oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a very taxi job, but not everybody's born to it. Um, it's very difficult in this, in this, you know, in North America, uh, we're not sort of geared to routinely caring for someone or, or a parent or, or whomever who's died. So not everyone is willing to do that, unfortunately. Uh, and, uh, you know, for many years people died in hospital. Now, of course, because of the big uh, the downsizing in hospitals and the beds being cut, then this is the caregiver has a, a very important role again. Right. And this is why it's very important that they should get all the care and information and education that they need. Good point. Now I want to, which is the time to close, I want to thank our listeners, and please do email us with comments and questions, which I'll be pleased to pass on to Vicky and Margaret. I want to say a special thank you to Margaret Anderson and Vicky Kine for sharing us with, sharing with us your experience, your insights, and your advice. And the sense of what the work really means to you both, um, where the strengths lie and where the challenges lie and how to respond to those challenges. So if I may say, um, from my own point of view and I hope from the point of view of everybody listening, that uh, we wish you every success in all the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're very welcome. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about kinship caring and grandparents' rights. Um, please join us, same time, same spot. On the Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being right.